Welcome to another episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening the door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. In this episode, we explore the east of England, taking in the Lincolnshire of Alfred Lord Tennyson, the most beautiful building in the world in Cambridgeshire, an Englishman's castle in Norfolk, the Suffolk that inspired an artist, and an ancient cathedral on the edge of the world in Essex. Stop 1. Lincolnshire Wolds Nature, red in tooth and claw. These words from Alfred Lord Tennyson's In Memoriam scarcely apply to the lovely, gentle Lincolnshire wolds where the poet was born. 220 square miles of bare, beautiful chalk and limestone hills, running north-south parallel to Lincolnshire's North Sea coast. An area of outstanding natural beauty, draped with waving, poppy-strewn pastures and edged with some of the most attractive villages and market towns in England. The lonely, prehistoric Bluestone Heath Road runs along the top of the Wolds, passing close by their summit, Wolds Top. At 551 feet above sea level, the highest point on England's east coast between Kent and Yorkshire. The views are spectacular. The Fens, the coast and the blue North Sea. Lincoln Cathedral, once the tallest building in the world. The Boston Stump, Medieval England's highest tower. Tattersall Castle, the finest piece of medieval brickwork in the country. And Grimsby's dazzling Italianate dock tower. And everywhere, flowers and fields. But very few people. Bliss. Passed over by the tourist hordes, the wolds may be. And so much the lovelier for it. But they have not been passed over by history. For a king was born in Lincolnshire's hills, Henry Bolingbroke, grandson of Edward III and son of John of Gaunt. Henry later took the throne of England from Richard II 
and was crowned Henry IV. The mounds and ditches and fallen stones of the mighty six-sided castle where he was born in 1366, which was levelled in the Civil War, lie on the edge of the rambling village of Old Bolingbroke, set in a Waldian valley beside a rushing stream. In the nearby market town of Spilsby in 1786 was born the Arctic explorer Sir John Franklin, who disappeared while looking for the Northwest Passage. His sister Sarah was the mother of Alfred Lord Tennyson's wife Emily, making Franklin Tennyson's uncle by marriage. The spirit of Tennyson is everywhere in the Wolds. One of our most popular poets, he was Poet Laureate for 42 years of Queen Victoria's reign and is the ninth most frequently quoted writer in the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations. Here is a fragrant nosegay of some of his best. There's not a reason why there's but to do and die. My strength is as the strength of ten because my heart is pure. To strive, to seek, to find and not to yield. So much to do, so little done. And my personal favourite, someone had blundered. Tennyson was born in the tiny, well-wooded Waldian village of Summersby, where his father was the rector. The rambling, pantiled Georgian house where he came into the world still stands, although it is no longer a rectory. Much of Tennyson's early poetry was inspired by the villages and countryside surrounding Summersby. For instance, here are The silent woody places by the home that gave me birth The woods that belt the grey hillside The babbling brook that flows to join the brimming river For men may come and men may go, but I go on forever A mile down the road from Summersby is Harrington Hall, a ravishing pink-brick 17th-century house set in pretty gardens, where Tennyson issued his famous invitation to the daughter of the house, Rosa Baring. Come into the garden, Maud. Alas, she never did, leaving the poor chap talking to the flowers. But then, tis better to have loved and lost and never to have loved at all, as the poet tells us. A little further east lies Gunby Hall, now National Trust, but built by the Lincolnshire family of Massingbird in the reign of William and Mary, and much beloved by Tennyson, who wrote of it, And one an English home, grey twilight poured on dewy pastures, dewy trees softer than sleep, all things in order stored, a haunt of ancient peace. And that is how I will always think of the tranquil, dreamy, timeless, sun-drenched Lincolnshire wolds. A haunt of ancient peace.
Stop 2, King's College Chapel, Cambridge. Although such things are highly subjective, more people put King's College Chapel, Cambridge at the top of their list of most beautiful buildings than any other building in England. Perhaps it is the dimensions or the spaciousness, the simplicity of the design, the huge windows, whatever it is, in a city of supremely beautiful buildings, King's College Chapel is the one that everyone comes to see and remembers. Indeed, so iconic is it of Cambridge that Cambridge City Council uses the chapel as its logo. The foundation stone of King's College Chapel was laid on the 25th of July 1446 by the 19-year-old Henry VI, who five years earlier had founded King's College for 70 scholars from Eton, his other great educational foundation. Henry intended his chapel to be without equal in Europe, and he specified the spectacular dimensions himself. The interior is 80 feet high from floor to ceiling, 40 feet wide and nearly 300 feet long, but such is the genius of the design, it appears even higher, wider and longer. Work was interrupted in 1455 by the outbreak of the Wars of the Roses between King Henry, who was of the House of Lancaster, and Richard of York. And when Henry was captured in 1461, work on the chapel stopped altogether. By this time, the foundations had been laid and a section of the walls raised. Not much happened during the reign of the triumphant Yorkist king Edward IV, but when he died, his brother Richard III ordered work to begin again. The chapel's growing pains are easy to discern, for the lower walls, completed under Henry VI, are built of white limestone from the college quarries at Tadcaster in Yorkshire, while the chapel was finished off with darker oolitic limestone from Northamptonshire. The chapel was finally finished under the two Tudor kings, Henry VII and Henry VIII, and Tudor symbols abound, carved into the stone tracery of the windows and into the woodwork. Tudor roses, red and white, the portcullis emblem of Henry VII's mother, Margaret Beaufort, the thorn bush from which Henry Tudor had plucked Richard III's crown at the Battle of Bosworth. Every feature of the chapel calls for superlatives. The wondrous fan-vaulted roof, so delicate that it seems to be made from lace rather than stone. It is the largest fan vault in the world and has been described as the noblest stone ceiling in existence. It was designed and built by two master masons, Simon Clark and John Wastel, and completed in just three years, from 1512 to 1515. The huge, magnificent stained glass windows 12 on either side with two even larger windows east and west, tell stories from the Old and New Testaments and are widely praised. The finest series of pictures in glass on a large scale anywhere in the world. The Great Rood Screen, one of the earliest examples of Renaissance art in England, 
was commissioned by Henry VIII to celebrate his marriage to Anne Boleyn, and is carved throughout with their initials. It was declared at the time, the finest piece of woodwork this side of the Alps, and was later described by Pevsner as, the most exquisite piece of Italian decoration surviving in England. King's College Chapel is not just easy on the eye, but also easy on the ear, for the acoustics of the lofty, uncluttered interior are sublime, worthy of one of the world's finest choirs. While wonderful music can be heard in Cambridge at any time of year, it is at Christmas that King's College Chapel rarely takes centre stage. For many people, not just in Britain but around the world, Christmas begins definitively at 3pm on Christmas Eve with the world's most famous carol service, the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols from King's College Chapel in Cambridge. The service was the idea of the Dean of King's, Eric Milner-White, and was first held in 1918, not just to celebrate the end of the First World War, but also as a way of making Church of England services more accessible and dynamic. The order of service was adapted from one devised in 1880 by Edward Benson, the then Bishop of Truro, as a way of keeping people out of the pubs on Christmas Eve. best choir in the world, singing the most beautiful carol service in the world, in the most beautiful building in the world, and the most beautiful magic of it is, if you are prepared to queue from dawn, you can be a part of it all. Stop 3. Holcomb Hall, Norfolk. An Englishman's home is his castle. So declared Sir Edward Cook, spelt Coke, C-O-K-E, but pronounced Cook, Chief Justice to James I, author of the Petition of Rights of 1628, setting out specific individual protections against the state, and celebrated defender of the common law. Sir Edward Cook's descendant, Thomas Cook, not the travel agent, but the Earl of Leicester, took his ancestor Sir Edward at his word, and built himself a vast home, more splendid than any castle, on an area of heathland and marsh on the North Norfolk coast. Holcomb Hall, completed over 30 years between 1734 and 1764, to the designs of Cook himself, with a little help from William Kent, is enormous. The north façade stretches for 360 feet, and the main block is flanked by four pavilions, each the size of a modest country house. 
Built of slightly daunting yellow-grey bricks made locally on the estate, Holcomb has been described as the purest expression of Palladian architecture in Britain and also boasts the finest Palladian interior in England. One enters the house through the marble hall, described modestly in the guidebook as perhaps the most dramatic entrance hall in all England, where a grand marble staircase rises past 18 fluted ionic columns of ivory, pink, purple and brown Derbyshire alabaster beneath a high, richly coffered ornamental ceiling. The effect is alive and overwhelming, a Roman temple set in the Norfolk countryside. What Thomas Cook did for the house, his great-nephew, another Thomas Cook, who became known as Cook of Norfolk, did for the surrounding 25,000-acre estate, or 26,000 acres at low tide, according to the present Earl of Leicester, turning it from sparse, sandy heathland, where two rabbits could be seen fighting for one blade of grass, as Cook put it, into rich, productive, arable farmland. Cook of Norfolk was one of the pioneers of the 18th century agricultural revolution, which led to a rapid increase in food production and efficiency in Britain and later throughout the world. He introduced crop rotation, planting wheat, grass, barley and turnips in successive years to nurture and enrich the soil, experimented with selective breeding of sheep and cattle, and laid the foundations of the modern agricultural show by inviting people from across East Anglia to sheep shearing displays, known as Cook Clippings. As MP for Norfolk, Cook delighted in his status as the greatest commoner in England, and refused all offers of a peerage, even vowing to break the Prince Regent's sword if the Prince tried to knight him. But once he had retired from public life, he eventually accepted the Earldom of Leicester from Queen Victoria and he was immortalised as the subject of the last ever painting by Thomas Gainsborough. A subsequent cook found himself immortalised in a slightly different fashion, as the instigator of that most iconic item of British headwear, the cook hat, or, as it is better but incorrectly known, the bowler hat. One fine August morning in 1849, Edward Cook journeyed up to town from Norfolk to pay a visit to the famous hatter Locke & Co of St James's. The purpose of his visit was to inquire of Locke's if they might be able to provide him with a hat to replace the rather impractical top hats that he and his gamekeepers at Holcombe wore while out on the estate, which were too fragile and kept falling off. The new hat needed to fit securely and be tough enough to protect the head from low overhanging tree branches and hostile poachers. Locke & Co passed on Cook's requirements to their chief hat maker, one Thomas Bowler, and he duly produced a prototype for Cook's approval. In December, Edward Cook travelled back up to London to inspect his new hat, and on being handed the aspiring headgear, 
he proceeded to place it on the floor and jump up and down on it in his cleated Norfolk boots. He then picked the hat up, dusted it down and checked it over for signs of damage. There were none, and so Cook put the hat on his head, placed an order for several more and returned to Norfolk. And to this day, the Earl of Leicester continues to order the hat to which his ancestor gave his name for his gamekeepers. And if you go to Lock and Co in St James's and ask for a bowler, they will politely proffer you a cook. Stop 4. Gainsborough's House, Sudbury, Suffolk. Nature was his teacher, and the woods of Suffolk his academy. While Cook of Norfolk was the subject of Thomas Gainsborough's last known painting, the subject of Gainsborough's first known painting was a pear tree, standing in the garden of his childhood home in Sudbury in Suffolk. Suffolk is chocolate box England made real. The English countryside of our dreams. The landscape is tranquil. There are no desolate moors, no dark and lowering mountains. The highest point in Suffolk, Great Wood Hill near Reed, is a mere 420 feet high. But Suffolk is not flat. It undulates seductively. No other county resembles our romantic vision of England so closely, and this is due in part to the paintings of Thomas Gainsborough. Suffolk made me a painter, he said, and the sketches he made as a boy provided material for his work throughout the rest of his life. Gainsborough was born in 1727 in a handsome 16th-century townhouse in a pretty street at the heart of peaceful Sudbury, an ancient place set beside a bend of the River Stour and surrounded by the oldest continuously grazed fields in England. The house is now a museum dedicated to his life and work, the only birthplace of an English artist open to the public. While the house has been somewhat refashioned, the lovely walled garden at the back remains much as Gainsborough would remember it, for, as well as a 400-year-old mulberry tree that was growing there in his day, the garden has been planted with the sorts of trees, plants and flowers that would have been found growing in the garden in the 18th century when he was there. These include a pear tree, similar to the one that appeared in Gainsborough's earliest known work, Tom Peartree. One late summer's day when he was 12 years old, Gainsborough was drawing a pear tree in the garden when he spotted a furtive-looking fellow leaning over the garden wall, gazing hungrily at the fruit. Gainsborough added a quick sketch of the ruffian into the picture, and so good was the likeness that the drawing was subsequently used in court to convict the rascal of pilfering. 
Gainsborough later turned the sketch into a life-size portrait in oils on wood, which he called Tom Pear Tree, and he placed it on a wall outside his home in Ipswich to advertise his work. The figure looked so real that passers-by would often raise their hats and bid Tom Pear Tree a polite good day. Good day. Equally lifelike is the bronze statue of Gainsborough, holding a palette and brush, which stands in front of St Peter's Church in Sudbury's marketplace, gazing down what is now Gainsborough Street, towards the house where the artist first saw the gentle Suffolk light. He would surely still recognise the street that now bears his name, for it can be little changed as it leads down from the house to a mill pool past a clutch of gorgeous 15th century buildings, such as the timbered and gabled Chantry House, its corner bracket carved with angels and flowers, and the Salter's Hall, with its high-pitched gable and lovely oriel window, the bracket below sumptuously carved, with a man holding a rabbit, a dog at his feet, a saddled horse on one side, and some sort of animal, a lion possibly, on the other side. It was this unchanging nature of Suffolk, especially rural Suffolk, that appealed to Gainsborough. Although he's renowned as a portrait painter, he only painted people to make money. His first love was landscape, and he would often use a Suffolk-inspired scene as a backdrop for his subjects. Described by his great rival Sir Joshua Reynolds as the first landscape painter in Europe, and regarded by many as the father of modern English landscape, Gainsborough passed his love of the Suffolk countryside on to another Suffolk-born painter, John Constable, who spoke of being moved to tears by Gainsborough's depictions of the stillness of noon, the depths of twilight, and the dews and pearls of the morning. Gainsborough rarely portrayed real scenes, infusing imaginary landscapes with a Suffolk-like aura. Constable, on the other hand, painted real Suffolk places that you can still recognise today. And the genius of them both ensures that when we think of England, we think of Suffolk. Stop 5. Bradwell-on-Sea, Essex If the world was flat, Bradwell-on-Sea is where you would fall off the edge. It lies beside the Blackwater Estuary at the end of the road, a nestle of nice old cottages a 14th century church with a red brick Georgian tower, 
a 16th century inn, and a mysterious house of journalists and spies, hidden by trees, Bradwell Lodge, a fusion of rambling moated Tudor rectory and sublimely beautiful Georgian pavilion with Robert Adam-inspired interior, so perfect that it hurts. The pavilion wing was added in 1780 by the colourful MP, magistrate, journalist, duelist, pugilist and playwright, the Reverend Sir Henry Bate Dudley, whose willingness to get into fist fights earned him the nickname the Fighting Parson, and whose uncompromising journalism as the first editor of the Morning Post and founder of the Morning Herald earned him the nickname the Reverend Bruiser as well as landing him in Newgate Prison for libelling the Duke of Richmond. The pavilion is crowned by a belvedere with many windows that the Reverend Bruiser had built both as a studio for his friend the artist Thomas Gainsborough, who painted his famous portrait of the actress Mrs Siddons in the belvedere, and as a watchtower from where he could spy the approach of those officious men from the revenue who were always trying to thwart his entirely legitimate trading activities. A century or more later, in 1902, the Anglo-Irish politician and writer Erskine Childers decided that the quiet and secluded Bradwell Lodge would make the perfect retreat while he was writing his spy novel, The Riddle of the Sands, about two young men on a yachting holiday who stumble upon a German plan to invade England. This hugely popular novel, never out of print, is considered one of the first, if not the first, modern spy thrillers. Childers, a keen sailor, would later use his own yacht to smuggle arms into Ireland for the Easter Uprising in 1916. Although he fought valiantly in the Royal Navy during World War I, winning a Distinguished Service Cross, he became a leading member of the IRA and was executed by an Irish firing squad in 1922 for rebelling against the establishment of the Irish Free State. In 1938, a somewhat run-down Bradwell Lodge was bought by Labour politician, MI5 informant and suspected KGB spy Tom Dryberg, who in 1933 had invented the modern gossip column. An intimate biographical column about men and women who matter. As he described it, written for the Daily Express under the byline of the 18th century diarist William Hickey. With financial help, from his boyfriend, the Cambridge spy Guy Burgess, Dryberg did up the house and lived there for more than 30 years, away from the prying eyes of his constituents and, somewhat ironically, the gossip columns. When raised to the House of Lords in 1974, he took the title Lord Bradwell and is buried in the churchyard at Bradwell-on-Sea.
Should you dare to step into the great emptiness beyond Bradwell Lodge, along a grassy track towards England's furthest east, where the metal grey sea and the sky become one, and the desolate marshes echo to the cries of seabirds and the crashing of the waves, you will come to England's earliest cathedral, St Peter on the Wall, founded by St Said on the very spot where he landed in AD 653 on his mission to convert the East Saxons to Christianity. The Romans knew that the world stopped at Bradwell, or Ortona as they called it, and they built a mighty moated fort there, 500 feet long and 300 feet wide, with walls 12 foot thick to guard against the sea monsters. The East Saxons put their magnificent cathedral on top of the wall and used the Roman bricks of the fort to build what was probably the biggest building in Saxon Britain at that time. A tall, mighty, four-square temple, 50 feet long, 22 feet wide and 24 feet high, with walls made two feet thick against the raging sea. For more than 700 years, the church drew pilgrims to this wild place, until a village began to rise amongst the trees set back inland, away from the marsh wind, and with a new church at its centre. The Saxon church was abandoned to the North Sea storms, passing out of all memory, until in 1920, a weary traveller paused to rest in what he thought was a farmer's barn pondered on the high gables, the Roman bricks, the arches, the noble proportions, and realised he had stumbled into somewhere thrilling. The cows and the hay bales were removed, and England's first cathedral was revealed in its glory. The building was lovingly restored, and its long wait across the centuries for prayer and song to be heard again within its walls was finally rewarded. Communion services are now held here weekly, and every year there are pilgrimages from all over the country to this venerable old church, this little Canterbury, this gateway to the dawn. There is nowhere quite like it. Well, that concludes our tour of the East of England. In the next episode we visit London, the UK's capital city, taking in London's first and best man-made viewpoint, the room where a shy 18-year-old girl became a queen, a secret garden, the house shared by two of the world's greatest musicians, and an inner-city church gone green. This has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne, with guest star Rupert Van Sittert. Find out more at ChristopherWynne'sIneverKnewThat.com and check out 
the I Never Knew That books online and at all good bookshops. My thanks to Rupert, to my executive producer, Jeremy Conrad, and to you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. Thank you.